Section 43. Chapter 36, Part 2 of Deerbrook. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Day. Deerbrook by Harriet Martineau. Chapter 36. The Next Day, Part 2. It was as follows. I have nothing to say in reply to your letter, for I cannot understand it. Yet I wonder less at your letter than at your having written it, instead of coming to me to say all that is in your mind. At some moments I still think that you will. I feel that you are on your way hither, and I fancy that this dreadful dream of your displeasure will pass away. It is the very first time in my life that any one has been seriously and lastingly displeased with me, and though I feel that I have not deserved it, I am very wretched that you, of all others, should blame me and cease to trust me. There ought to be some comfort in the thought that your anger is without cause, but I cannot find such comfort, for I feel that though I could endure your loss by long absence or death, I cannot live in the spirit in which I should wish to live without your esteem. It is useless, alas, to entreat you to come and explain yourself, or in some other way put me in possession of the cause of your anger. If you could resist the claims I had upon you for confidence before I knew what was going to befall me, if you could resist the demand I made yesterday, I fear there is little use in imploring you to do me justice. If I thought there was any chance, I would submit to entreat though I would not have you, any more than myself, forget that I have a right to demand. But indeed I would yield everything that I dare forego to have you awakened from this strange delusion which makes us both wretched. It is no time for pride now. I care not how fully you know what I feel. I only wish that you could see into my soul as into your own. For then you would not misjudge me as you do. I care not what any one may think of my throwing myself upon the love which I am certain that you feel for me. If I can only persuade you to tell me what you mean, and to hear what I shall then have to say. What can I now say? I will not reproach you, for I know you must be even, if possible, more miserable than I. But yet, how can I help feeling that you have been unjust and harsh with me? Yes, though the tone of your letter seems to be gentle, and you clearly meant it to be so, I feel that you have been very harsh to me. Nothing that you can do shall ever make me so cruel to you. You may rest satisfied if we should not meet again. I will never be unjust to you. To everyone about me it will appear that you are fickle and dishonourable, that you have acted towards me, as it is in the nature of some men, to act towards the women's whose affections they possess, in the nature of some men, but not in yours. I know you to be incapable of anything worse than error or mistrust, and, till yesterday, I could not have believed you capable of this much wrong, and you may trust me to impute to you nothing worse than this. Suffering as I now am, as we both are, under this error and mistrust, May I not implore you, for your own sake, for mine it is too late, to nourish the weak part of yourself, to question your own unworthy doubts, 
and to study the best parts of the minds you meet, till you grow assured, as a religious man ought to be, that there can be no self-interest, and much less falsehood, mixed up with any real affection, with any such affection as has existed between us two. I must not write more, for I do not know, I cannot conjecture, how you may receive what I have written, thinking of me as you do now. It is strange to remember that at this time yesterday, in this very chair, I was writing to you, oh, how differently. Is it possible that it was only yesterday, such a world of misery as we have lived through since? But I can write no more. It may be that you will despise me in every line as you read, after what has happened. I cannot tell. Notwithstanding all that I have said about trusting, I feel at this moment as if I could never depend on anything in the world again. If you should come within this hour and explain all, how could I be sure that the same thing might not happen again? But do not let this weigh a moment with you. If indeed you think of coming, if I do not see you to-day, I shall never see you. I will then bear in mind, as you desire, and as I cannot help, that you still love me, but how little comfort there is in love when trust is gone. God comfort us both. Margaret Ibbotson Mrs. Rowland was crossing the hall at the moment that her maid Betsy opened the door to Mr. Hope's errand-boy, and took in this letter. "'Where are you carrying that letter?' she said, as Betsy passed her. "'To the study, ma'am, against Mr. Enderby comes in. It is for Mr. Enderby, ma'am. Very well.' The letter was placed on the study mantelpiece, the place of deposit for letters for absent members of the family. Mrs. Rowland, meantime, resumed her seat in the drawing-room, where the nursemaid was amusing the baby. Mamma took the baby and sent the maid away. She had a strong belief that her brother might be found somewhere in the shrubbery, though some feeling had prevented her telling the servant so when the letter was taken in. She went with the baby in her arms into the study to see whether Philip was visible in any part of the garden that could be seen thence, but she stopped short of the window. The handwriting on the address of the letter troubled her sight. More than half persuaded as she was of the truth of much that she had told her brother, strenuously as she had nourished the few facts she was in possession of, till she had made them yield a double crop of inferences, she was yet conscious of large exaggerations of what she knew, and of huge additions to what she believed to be probabilities, and had delivered as facts. There was in that handwriting a prophecy of detection, and like other cowards she began to tamper with her reason and conscience. There is great mischief in letters at such times, she thought. They are so difficult to answer, and it is so possible to produce any effect that may be wished by them. As my husband was reading the other day, it is so easy to be virtuous, to be perfect upon paper. Nothing that the girl can say ought to alter the state of the case. It can only harass Philip's feelings, and perhaps cause all the work to be gone over again. His letter was meant to be final, I am confident, from his intending to go away this evening. There should have been no answer. This letter is a pure impertinence, and ought to be treated as such. It is a sort of duty to use it as it deserves. Many parents, 
at least I know old Mr. Boyle did, burn letters which they know to contain offers to daughters whom they do not wish to part with. Mr. Boyle had no scruple, and I am sure this is the stronger case. Better end the whole affair at once, and then Philip will be free to form a better connection. He will thank me one day for having broken off this. She carried the letter into the drawing-room, slowly contemplating it as she went. She thought for one fleeting instant of reading it. She was not withheld by honour, but by fear. She shrank from encountering its contents. She glanced over the mantelpiece and saw that the lucifer matches were at hand. To make a letter burn quickly, it was necessary to unfold it. She put the child down on the rug, a favourite play-place, for the sake of the gay pink and green shavings which, at this time of year, curtained the grate. While baby crawled and gazed quietly and contentedly there, Mrs. Rowland broke the seal of Margaret's letter, turning her eyes from the writing, laid the blistered sheet in the hearth and set fire to it. The child set up a loud crow of delight at the flame. At that moment, even this simple and familiar sound startled its mother out of all power of self-control. She snatched up the child with a vehemence which frightened it into a shrill cry. She feared the nursemaid would come before all the sparks were out, and she tried to quiet the baby by dancing it before the mirror over the mantelpiece. She met her own face there, white as ashes, and the child saw nothing that could amuse it, while its eyes were blinded with tears. She opened the window to let it hearken to the church clock, and the device was effectual. Baby composed its face to serious listening before the long succession of strokes was finished, and allowed the tears to be wiped from its cheeks. One thing more remained to be done. Mrs. Rowland heard a step in the hall and looked out. It was Betsy's. "'I thought it was you. Pray desire Cook send up a cup of broth for Miss Rowland's lunch.' and be sure and let Miss Rowland know, the moment it is ready. Mr. Enderby is in the shrubbery, I think. Yes, ma'am, seeing he was there, I was coming to ask about the letter, ma'am, to carry it to him. Oh, that letter. I sent it to him. He has got it. Tell Cook directly about the broth. At lunchtime, one of the children was desired to summon Uncle Philip. Mrs. Rowland took care to meet him at the garden door. She saw him cast a wistful eye towards the study mantelpiece as he passed the open door. His sister observed that she had believed it was past post-time for this half-week. He sighed deeply, and she felt that no sigh of his had ever so gone to her heart before. "'Why, Mamma, do look!' cried George, as well as a mouthful of bread would allow. "'Look at the chimney! Where have all the shavings gone?' "'There is a knot at the top.' that they were tied together with, but not a bit of shaving left. Have they blown up the chimney? What will poor baby say? exclaimed Matilda. All the pretty pink and green gone. There is some tinder blowing about, observed George. I do believe they've been burnt. Shut the window, George, will you? There's no bearing this draught. There is no bearing wet Betsy's waist either. She has burned those shavings somehow in cleaning the grate. Her carelessness is past endurance. Make her buy some new shavings, Mamma, for baby's sake. Do be quiet and get your lunch. Hand your uncle the dish of currants. Philip languidly picked a few bunches. 
he had noticed nothing that had passed, as his sister was glad to observe. Besides being too much accustomed to hear complaints of the servants, to give any heed to them, he was now engrossed with his own wretched thoughts. Every five minutes that passed, without bringing a reply from Margaret, went to confirm his most painful impressions. Margaret, meantime, was sitting alone in her chamber, enduring the long morning as best she might, now plying her needle as if life depended on her industry, and now throwing up her employment in disgust. She listened for the one sound she needed to hear, till her soul was sick of every other. "'I must live wholly within myself now,' she thought. "'As far as he is concerned, I can never speak of him, or allow Hester or Maria to speak of him to me, for they will blame him. Every one will blame him. Maria did yesterday. No one will do him justice. I cannot ask Mrs. Gray, as I intended, anything of what she may have seen and heard about all this. I have had my joy to myself. I have carried about my solitary glory and bliss in his being mine, and now I must live alone upon my grief for him. For no person in the world will pity and justify him but myself. He has done me no wrong that he could help. His staying away to-day is to save me pain, as he thinks. I wish I had not said in my letter that he had been harsh to me. Perhaps he would have been here by this time if I had not said that. How afraid he was that day in the spring when he urged me so to marry at once. Oh, if I had, all this would have been saved. And yet I thought, and I still think, I was right. But how afraid he was of our parting, lest evil should come between us. I promised him it should not, for my own part, but who could have thought that the mistrust would be on his side? He had a superstitious feeling, he said, that something would happen, that we should be parted, and I would not hear of it. How presumptuous I was! How did I dare to make so light of what has come so dreadfully true? Oh, why are we made so that we cannot see into another's hearts? If we are made to depend on one another so absolutely as we are, so that we hold one another's peace to cherish or to crush, why is it such a blind dependence? Why are we left so helpless? Why, with so many powers as are given us, have we not that one other, worthy of all the rest, of mutual insight? If God would bestow this power for this one day, I would give up all else for it ever after. Philip would trust me again, and I should understand him, and I could rest afterwards, happen what might, though then nothing would happen but what was good. But now, shut in, each into ourselves, with anger and sorrow all about us, from some mistake which a moment's insight might remove, it is the dreariest, the most tormenting state. What are all the locks and bars and fetters in the world to it, so near each other too, when one look, one tone, might perhaps lead to the clearing up of it all? There is no occasion to bear this, however, so near as we are, nothing should prevent our meeting, nothing shall prevent it. She started up and hastily put on her bonnet and gloves, but when her hand was on the lock of her door, her heart misgave her. If I should fail, she thought, if he should neither look at me nor speak to me, if he should leave me as he did yesterday, 
I should never get over the shame. I dare not store up such a wretched remembrance to make me miserable as often as I think of it, for as long as I live. If he will not come after reading my letter, neither would he hear me if I went to him. Oh, he is very unjust. After all his feats of my being influenced against him, he might have distrusted himself. After making me promise to write, on the first morning, that any one might try to put into my mind, he might have remembered to do the same by me, instead of coming down in this way, not to explain, but to overwhelm me with his displeasure, without giving me a moment's time to justify myself. Edward seems strangely unkind too, she sighed, as she slowly untied her bonnet and put it away, as if to avoid tempting herself with the sight of it again. I never knew Edward unjust or unkind before, but I heard him ask Philip why he stayed to hear me in the Abbey yesterday, and though he has been with Philip this morning, he does not seem to have made the slightest attempt to bring us together. When such as Edward and Philip do so wrong, one does not know where to trust or what to hope. There is nothing to trust but God and the right. I will live for these, and no one shall henceforth hear me complain, or see me droop, or know anything of what lies deepest in my heart. It must be possible. It has been done. Many nuns in their convents have carried it through, and missionaries in heathen countries, and all the wisest who have been before their age. And some would say, Maria would say, almost every person who has loved as I have, but I do not believe this, I do not believe that many can have felt as I do now. It is not natural and right that any should live as I mean to do. We are made for confidence, not for solitude and concealment. But it may be done when circumstances press as they do upon me, and if God gives me strength, I will do it. I will live for him and his, and my heart, let it suffer as it may, shall never complain to human ear. It shall be silent as the grave. The resolution held for some hours. Margaret was quiet and composed through dinner, though her expectation, instead of dying out, grew more intense with every hour. After dinner Hope urged his wife to walk with him. It had been a fine day, and she had not been out. There was still another hour before dark. Would not Margaret go too? No, Margaret could not leave home. When Hester came down, equipped for her walk, she sat beside her sister on the sofa for a minute or two while waiting for Edward. "'Margaret,' said she, "'will you let me say one word to you?' "'Anything, Hester, if you will not be hard upon any one whom you cannot fully understand.' "'I would not for the world be hard, love, but there was once a time, above a year ago, when you warned me, kindly warned me, though I did not receive it kindly, against pride as, as a support. You said it could not support me, and you said truly. May I say the same to you now? Thank you. It is kind of you. I will consider, but I do not think that I have any pride in me today. I feel humbled enough. It is not for you to feel humbled, love. Reverence yourself, as for you may. Nothing has happened to impair your self-respect. Admit freely to your own mind, and to us, that you have been cruelly injured, and that you suffer as you must and ought. 
admit this freely, and then rely on yourself and us. Margaret shook her head. She did not say it, but she felt that she could not rely on Edward while he seemed to stand between her and Philip. He came in at the moment, and she averted her eyes from him. He felt her displeasure in his heart's core. When they returned, sooner than she expected from their walk, they had bad news for her, which they had agreed it was most merciful not to delay. They had seen Enderby in Mr. Rowland's gig on the Blickley Road. He had his carpet-bag with him, and Mr. Rowland's man was undoubtedly driving him to Blickley to meet the night coach for London. "'It is better to save you all further useless expectation,' observed Edward. "'We keep nothing from you.' "'You keep nothing from me,' said Margaret, now fixing her eyes upon him. "'Then what is your reason for not having brought us together?' if indeed you have not kept us apart. Do I suppose you, I did not hear you send him from me yesterday? And how do I know that you have not kept him away to-day? My dear Margaret! exclaimed Hester, but a look from her husband, and the recollection of Margaret's misery silenced her. For the first time Hester forgave on the instant the act of blaming her husband. Whatever I have done, whether it appears clear to you or not, replied Hope. It is from the most tender respect for your feelings. I shall always respect them most tenderly, and not the less for their being hurt with me. I have no doubt of your meaning that all is kind, Edward, but surely when two people misunderstand each other, it is best that they should meet. If you have acted from a regard to what you consider my dignity, I could wish that you had left the charge of it to myself. You are right, quite right, then why, O oh Edward, if you repent what you have done, it may not yet be too late? I do not repent. I have done, done you no wrong to-day, Margaret. I grieve for you, but I could not have helped you. Let us never speak on this subject again, said Margaret, stung by the consciousness of having so soon broken the resolution of the morning, that her suffering heart should be silent as the grave. It is not from pride, Hester, that I say so, but let us never again speak of all this let us know but one thing margaret said edward that yours is the generous silence of forgiveness i do not mean with regard to him for i fear you will forgive him sooner than we can do i do not mean him particularly nor those who have poisoned his ear but all only tell us that your silence is the oblivion of mercy so mourning for the erring that for its own sake, it remembers their transgressions no more. Margaret looked up at them both. Though her eyes swam in tears, there was a smile upon her lips as she held out her hand to her brother and yielded herself to Hester's kiss. End of chapter 36